0: Well, turn in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 25. We're continuing our series to live in the presence of God, working through the book of Leviticus. And we remember everything that takes place in this book is happening at the foot of Mount Sinai. The tabernacle has been built and it's in operation and God is teaching the people what it looks like to live in his presence. This morning, we're going to look at the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee. And that's Leviticus 25. If you were to visit in Philadelphia the Liberty Bell, you would see that it contains on it an inscription from our passage in Leviticus 25 this morning. According to the National Park Service, and now I'm I'm reading from their website, the Liberty Bell's inscription is from the Bible, King James Version, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. This verse refers to the Jubilee, or the instructions to the Israelites to return property and free slaves every 50 years. Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly, Isaac Norris, chose this inscription for the State House Bell in 1751. So, the Pennsylvania State House Bell is the bell that became our national liberty bell. So he chose this inscription in 1751, possibly to commemorate the 50th anniversary, okay, 50 years, just like Jubilee, of William Penn's 1701 Charter of Privileges for what is now the state of Pennsylvania or the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. The Charter of Privileges, and now I'm just explaining, names as the first liberty liberty of worship and liberty of conscience, freedom of worship, freedom of conscience. It then goes on to say that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ as savior of the world is eligible to hold government office. Now, in the days of our country's founding, we had a much greater understanding of where true liberty actually comes from. But that's just kind of background for what we're going to look at today in Leviticus chapter 25 as we look at the year of Jubilee. And it's a long chapter, so we're just going to kind of walk through it section by section and learn about it as we go, comment on it as we go. So as we begin, let's look at the first seven verses. And this is setting us up with the Sabbath year, which happens every seven years. And that lays the groundwork for what we're going to see in the rest of the chapter regarding the Jubilee year. So Leviticus 25, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord, you shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your, har- in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired servant and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield Shall be for food. So every seventh year in Israel was to be a Sabbath year. In that seventh year, there was to be no planting, cultivating, harvesting, not officially, um, not like bringing in a major harvest. Everything that grew, everything that the land produced without the people working the land was available to eat, though. Anyone and everyone was allowed to eat whatever the land produced. And God promised that when they gave the land a rest on this seventh year, he would provide for them everything they needed. All right, jump in then at verse 8. And now we're talking about the year of Jubilee. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. So every seventh year in Israel was a Sabbath year, and then after seven of those seven year cycles, after 49 years, the next year, the fiftieth, was the year of Jubilee. This was a Sabbath year and more. So that also means that there's two Sabbath years back to back because the 49th year is a Sabbath year and the 50th year is the year of Jubilee. Okay? Now, not only was the year of Jubilee a year of rest like every other Sabbath year, but it's also a release of debt for the people so they can return to their land. And we'll see more details in a moment, but here's a kind of quick summary of the key points of what happens in the year of Jubilee. All the debts were canceled for the people of God. And since all debts were canceled, everyone was restored to their original family land, the tribal allotments that God had given. You remember when they came into the land, God divided up the land, and he said, here's who gets each land, each tribe, each family, each clan. And so everybody returns in the year of Jubilee and that land is restored to you if you had you know, sold it or whatever. Everybody go, it's, like a, it's a reset. Everything goes back to the way it was when God divided up the land. The year of Jubilee, so that, then combined rest, Sabbath, with release from debt and a return to the land. So that also means then that families are restored to each other since they're all returning to their tribal lands where they were together. So as we go through this this morning, keep in mind that when we talk about Jubilee, we're talking about release from debt, which includes slavery, so release for the slaves, and it's a return to the land. Now think about what that means in regard to the land particularly. This law prevented the land from being treated simply as a capital asset. There's family implications. The family owned the land, not just an individual. There were environmental implications. You would want to exercise good stewardship over the land because this land was your family's land permanently. Even if you sold it at some point, it would be returned to you in the year of Jubilee. There were identity implications. The land was part of your identity. You belonged there. Now today, we kind of struggle with that because we move from place to place, you know, a little plot of land to land. And and we think of our identity probably more in terms of our job or vocation. And we think, well, I could move to different places and still do that job or something similar. But in Israel, your geographic home, your land was... It was much more an integral part of who you were. It's your identity. And notice also what the starting point of Jubilee is. It's the day of atonement. The year of Jubilee begins with the day of atonement. Jubilee is founded on atonement. Release of debt follows atonement. Inheritance in the land is secured by atonement. Rest in the land is made possible by atonement. Family identity and togetherness is established by atonement. Atonement is the starting point and the premise for Jubilee. Let's continue on. Look at verse 13. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he's selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God." So if someone needed to sell their land, they did it with the knowledge that the land would be returned to their family in the year of Jubilee. That means, first, that land sales were really long-term leases. These verses say that the value of the land sale should be calculated by considering how many years it's been since the last Jubilee. In other words, if there's many years till the next jubilee, then the price is going to be higher. If there's only a few years left, then the price is going to be much lower. The set price must be just. You shall not wrong each other. Okay, verse 18. Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. So, When God's people are faithful to obey his law, they will find safety, security. In an agricultural society, taking a year off, or in the year of Jubilee, taking two years in a row off, well, to not plant, to cultivate, to harvest, that's a great test of faith. And what does God say? God says, trust me. In fact, the word in verses 18 and 19 that shows up there as security, that word means both the fact of safety and security that God is promising and the feeling of security that comes with it. God's people are truly safe in God's hands. And obedience to him brings confidence and boldness. All right, now verses 23 and 24. Now these are two short verses, but there's a a, a lot of really important ideas connected to this. Verses 23 and 24. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. So first of all, note the clear statement that the land belongs to God. This is a crucial point to catch for a number of reasons. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns the whole earth and everything that it produces. It's all his. He then gives it to us as his stewards so the land should be treated the way that God says it should be treated. And God says that the land was to have rest. In fact, if Israel disobeyed that, God said he would kick Israel out of the land. So that the land could have its rest. And it happened. Israel was disobedient continually and God sent them into exile. Now we usually think of exile just in terms of they were disobedient and they got kicked out of the land. So they didn't have the blessing of being in the land. But there's actually something specific here about the rest in the land. Listen to how 2 Chronicles 36 verse 21 describes this. God sent Israel into exile, it says... To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So 70 years of rest for the land to make up for the years that Israel did not obey God's word and give the land rest. Now God's instructions for the land clearly state that the control of the property is in the hands of the private family, not the state. The private family, according to their tribal allotments, as it's all divided out by God, control the land and therefore they control the means of production. The economy is centered around the private family Not around the state. This is God's land. He's given the stewardship of it to each family, in each clan, in each tribe. And he preserves this arrangement through the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee restores the ownership of the land to each family as God had given it to them. Now this is a very different mindset from communism or socialism. A lot of progressive Christians today use the year of Jubilee to argue that private property should be eliminated, since Jubilee brings about this kind of redistribution of property. But it completely misses the point that, of what God is doing. God is preserving and restoring the family ownership of the land that He established. The state doesn't control the distribution of the land, God does. It's his land. And the contrast here can be illustrated in two songs. Okay, Now these songs show a different difference of mindset and understanding of who owns the land. And these songs both have to do with America, but the point here is not that America is God's chosen land or anything like that. It's just illustrating different perspectives on God and the land. Okay? So during World War I, Irving Berlin wrote the song, God Bless America. And he revised it in 1938 in the run-up to World War II, and he published it in 1939. You can see him here leading a group of soldiers in singing the song. And the song is a prayer for God's blessing on the land of America. Okay, So the song says, God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her, through the night, with the light from above. From the mountains, to the prairies, to the oceans, white with foam, God bless America, my home sweet home. So in this song, there's an identification with the land, my home sweet home. But there's also this deeper recognition That ultimately it belongs to God and what happens to the land will be determined by his blessing or the lack of his blessing. And the prayer is for God to stand with her during the night. What's the night? What's very real difficulties and dark times that we face? Remember, this is written in the context of a world war. But there's an understanding that what will bring her through the difficult night is a divine and supernatural guidance. Guide her with the light from above. Okay, Now, contrast that with another song. Woody Guthrie hated the song God Bless America. He was a communist supporter. He attended communist events, was a member of the Communist Party. He was a vocal supporter of Joseph Stalin. In response to the popularity of Irving Berlin's song, God Bless America, Guthrie wrote his own song about the land. This land is your land. Okay? And it says, This land is your land, and this land is my land. From the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, God blessed America for me. This land was made for you and me. Now Guthrie is saying God may have blessed America at some point in the past, but this land belongs to me. It belongs to you. Now, his political leanings kind of come out in some of the verses that are less well-known. For instance, was a high wall there that tried to stop me. A sign was painted, said private property, but on the backside, it didn't say nothing. God blessed America for me. This land was made for you and me. And the point here is, the land said, the sign said private property, but he didn't listen to the sign. That's how he knows what was on the back or what was not on the back, because he, he ignored the sign. He's saying he doesn't agree with the concept of private property. That was a central idea of Karl Marx, and Woody Guthrie loved the writings of Karl Marx. People are getting too wealthy. The land should be owned collectively by all of us. But his true feelings kind of come out most clearly in the final verse. One bright sunny morning, in the shadow of the steeple, by the relief office, I saw my people. As they stood hungry, I stood there wondering if God blessed America for me. This land was made for you and me. So poverty for Guthrie is evidence that God apparently has not really blessed America. Notice where the poor are standing. They're standing in the shadow of the church, But where do they get their relief? Does it come from God? It comes from the relief office, from the state. God's design though, is night and day different from socialism. First of all, notice that it's only the land that is returned to its original owner. This is not a system where all the goods and money are redistributed by the state. And second, what is the purpose of the Jubilee? The land is restored to its original private owners, designated by God. The state doesn't decide who gets the land. God's design here preserves private ownership. It protects private ownership. If circumstances occur to you such that you fall on hard times and you have to sell your land, God's design ensures that the land will stay in your family. Now, socialist governments, or big governments, do the opposite. They effectively disinherit families through crazy high inheritance taxes. That contradicts Jubilee law. Jubilee is about restoring and preserving the family with its means of production, not about equal outcomes through state-controlled redistribution plans. Let's keep going, verses 25 to 28. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return to his property. But if he has not sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. So if an Israelite was compelled because of poverty to sell his land, his closest kinsman was required to redeem the land for him family had an obligation to relieve distress within the family, to prevent loss of land and various kinds of need. Now, the kinsman redeemer here is a picture of Christ. And I wish we had more time. There's a lot more we could say here. And I'll just say, if you want to dig into that idea, go back to the series we did on the book of Ruth many years ago. We talked at length about the kinsman redeemer because that's one of the main things that book of the Bible is displaying for us, okay? But let me just summarize for now. Christ is our kinsman redeemer, our older brother who redeems the land, frees his kin from slavery, and marries his bride to redeem her and her property, preserving his people and their inheritance. Verse 29, If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year, he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the jubilee. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed and they shall be released in the jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever." So a house within a walled town could only be redeemed in the first year, and the exception to that was the home of a Levite. God's design for the Levites was that they have a permanent home within various cities spread around the land in order to carry out the religious education of the nation. If a town or a city was unwalled, it was considered to be part of the fields, and all of the fields were the land that God had allotted to the tribes. Verse 35 If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So we see here that taking advantage of and making money off of the poor is forbidden. Our federal programs that are supposed to provide relief to the poor, but actually provide more money to the bureaucracy, violate at least the spirit of the law of Jubilee here because they're violating God's design. The word prophet in verse 37 can also mean nourishment. So we're not to be fed on our neighbor's poverty. We're supposed to deal with compassion towards those who are in need. Verse 39 then. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he... Shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan, and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, You may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly." Okay, so here we have regulations regarding slavery or indentured servitude. If an Israelite had no other recourse to clear their debts, they could sell themselves into service. But if someone did this, the owner was to treat them as a hired worker. The owner could not take advantage of them, and their work was to be compensated. It contributed toward paying their debt. And in the year of Jubilee, they were set free. So, this slavery was not permanent. It had an end point, either when the debt was paid or when the year of Jubilee arrived. The situation was different with foreigners. They became slaves and stayed that way. They could be passed down to subsequent generations, but they could also convert. Exodus 12:48 says, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. So the foreigner who converted was to be treated as a native of the land, and that would mean that they would be set free in the Jubilee. So you have this kind of uh, living picture that if you belong to God, then you get to be free. And if you don't belong to God, then you don't get to be free. It's a living picture that that was kind of carried out within the life of the nation of Israel. Now, I think we need to be careful when we talk about issues like slavery. And here's why. This may surprise you a little bit. Our tendency is to adopt the mindset of the age that we live in and to simply say that slavery is wrong. But that would contradict scripture. We should not apologize for God's word. And people try to apologize for God's word and explain it away and end up undermining the authority of God's word. Let me explain a little bit with this issue of slavery. First of all, the Bible condemns the slave trade. So treating people as an economic asset to be traded The Bible condemns the slave trade. The Bible also condemns racism. So race-based slavery would have an element intertwined with it that would be against God's word. Many of the ways that slavery has happened in our world has not been in line with God's law. So you can even look in our own country's history and you can see plenty of examples of slavery that was race-based and was cruel, that does not in any way conform to God's law. But you can also see examples, if you're willing to be honest with history, of, of, of families that had slaves but treated them as members of the family and did it in a much more biblically aligned way. In a fallen world, people fall into debts they can't pay off. Slavery, indentured servitude, is a way to fulfill those debts. So the Bible instructs slaves to work well for their masters because they're really working for God. And the Bible instructs masters to treat their slaves fairly and charitably, even as members of the household. In Deuteronomy 23, think about this for a minute, the people are forbidden to return a runaway slave to his master. Now, what would that mean for you if you're a master? Well, it would mean that you would have a very strong incentive to treat your slaves well, so that they have no reason to run away. Now, having said all of that, I think it's also true that the logic of the gospel demonstrates that freedom is to be preferred. Slavery is a result of sin. Slavery itself isn't sin. It's a result of sin in this world that we live in. And as sin's effects are rolled back by the gospel, getting rid of slavery is a good thing. The gospel means freedom from our spiritual debts and our physical and financial reality should reflect that. While Paul gives instructions to masters and slaves about how to live honorably in those relationships, he also tells slaves to take any legitimate opportunity for freedom. So we don't need to say that slavery is morally wrong in order to work for its elimination. Sin is wrong and slavery is a result of sin, but God doesn't outlaw slavery. Instead, he regulates it and shows how to honor him whether you're a slave or a master. So our Christian responsibility today here is, I think, number one, to be honest about what scripture says and number two, to work toward freedom because that's God's ideal. That's how he designed us. Let's move on. Verses 47 to 55. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. Notice there the possibility of growing rich while in slavery, he shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee. And the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired servant. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption, some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a servant hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. That word servants also can be translated slaves. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So as soon as possible, an Israelite in slavery is to be redeemed. The master is to be compensated properly, that's justice. But God's people are to live as free people, as far as it is possible. Paul says to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 7, he says, You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. The key there, as it is in Leviticus 25, is that the people of God belong to God. Look again at verse 55, the last verse in in Leviticus 25. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. That's why slavery was always temporary for God's people. You ultimately belong to God. And belonging to someone else obscures that fact temporarily. So as much as it's possible, live free. The Jubilee laws resonate with the story of the Exodus. Both stories begin with national sacrifice. The Exodus, it's the Passover lambs. With Jubilee, it's the day of atonement and the, the, the offerings of that day. Both of them proclaim the liberation, the freedom of an enslaved people. And both of them have as their end goal, restoring the people of God to the land that God had promised them. Jubilee wiped clean each person's slate of debt. Sin has created an insurmountable spiritual debt for each of us. Jubilee signifies the cancellation of that debt for the people of faith. And it's accomplished, of course, by Jesus. Now, when Jesus was here, In Luke chapter 4, we read about him coming to the synagogue in Nazareth. And he's asked to read from the scriptures and comment on it. And he turns to the scroll of Isaiah and here's what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, the year of the Lord's favor. That's jubilee. That's what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus tells them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is telling them that Jubilee has arrived. In his death and resurrection, all who have faith would find ultimate release from their sin debts. They would find true freedom. They would be redeemed. They would be restored to their inheritance They would be brought finally to the land where they would be reunited with their elder brother Jesus and God, their father. They would find Jubilee. Now I want you to imagine with me something this morning for a moment. I want you to picture, identify in your mind what it is that brings you security. Maybe it's your 401k, your retirement fund. Maybe it's your house, your cars. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your job security. Maybe it's things like health insurance or life insurance, knowing that you have something to fall back on, okay? So everybody have that in your mind. What is it that you find security in? And now I want you to imagine that a series of events happen in short order to take all of that away. You lose your retirement. You lose your job. You even lose your ability to work. You lose your health insurance. You find yourself facing a major medical issue. The bank forecloses on your house. You lose your cars. Imagine for a moment the feeling that you would have, the loss, the despair, the hopelessness. There's nothing left to do. And now I want you to take that feeling and translate that into the spiritual and moral realm. You come to realize that all of your good works, everything you thought you were doing right, in God's eyes, is worthless. You're stained by sin in every part. You're completely unable to become righteous. And it's not just this life that's on the line. It is an eternity of hopelessness that you're facing. Your sin debt that you owe to God is infinitely beyond anything that you could ever hope to repay. You are a slave to sin with no hope of ever finding freedom. You have nothing. And into that situation, God says, you're free. Your debts are completely forgiven. You're released from your sin debt, from your slavery to sin. And not only are your debts forgiven, but you now have in your account an infinite and endless supply of righteousness. You're free. That's the message of the year of Jubilee. That's why everything about Jubilee is founded on atonement. That's why the Day of Atonement brings about the beginning of Jubilee. Everything you lost because of sin is now restored to you and more. All the debts that you incurred have been paid off. You're free. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we think of what you were teaching your people with the year of Jubilee, may we understand the incredible gift that Jubilee is, that because of atonement, because you have paid our sin debt and carried our sins far away, we are now set free. You've designed us to be free people. And we've enslaved ourselves to sin and Satan. But you have come in the person of Jesus to rescue us. May we this morning have a sense, a greater sense of what you have done for us. That, that our hearts would be lifted up in praise to you. That we would set our affections on you. That we would love you more because of what you have done. That because we've been loved so greatly, we would love. That because we've been forgiven, we would forgive. We sit at your feet as people who have nothing to bring you, nothing to offer. We have empty hands because all we bring is our own unrighteousness. And yet you tell us that if we simply look to you in faith, if we trust you, that you give us freedom. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. May you teach us to live out of that freedom.